the, the situation that prompted John to write the letter is one of confusion. Some false teachers, it would seem, had arisen from within the congregation. They had taught some distortion of the person of Christ, which then becomes a distortion of the gospel itself. And then those false teachers seemingly had left the congregation. This is Timeless Truth Today, and I'm your host, Matt Williams. Welcome to part one of Pursuing a Larger View of Christ, a three-part series from Pastor Paul Twiss. Pastor Paul's text for this series is the Apostle John's first epistle, chapter one, verses one through four. The author of the letter, John the Apostle, was part of Jesus's inner circle of disciples. With Peter and James, John was present at the Transfiguration, the betrayal, and was there beside Jesus' mother, Mary, at the crucifixion. Imagine his sorrow now, seeing many years later, the false teachers diminishing the person of Christ to these many new church brethren many years later. His reaction was understandably bold and confrontational. Here's part one of Pursuing a Larger View of Christ. I began to think through some sermons in First John about this time last year. I had the opportunity to teach Greek grammar at the seminary, and you may not know this, uh, a useless fact, First John is the easiest Greek in all of the New Testament. So any Greek student will invariably end up working their way through these five chapters as part of their learning, and that's what I, I did with the students. We worked through some grammar, and then we opened up First John, and we worked through it. And I'd worked through the book many times before, and it just occurred to me, why do I keep working through the book and not using my study to put some sermons together. Uh, so it was about this time last year that I thought maybe just to start to develop some messages in this book. Um, the Greek is simple, but the theology is not. It's profound. And the more I've studied these five chapters over the course of the last few months, the more my soul has been fed and enriched and challenged in many ways. And I'm very excited to spend the next six weeks working through at least some of this book with you, uh, I don't think we'll get through the whole of it, not by any means. Most likely we'll end up somewhere around chapter 3 uh, over the course of the next six Sunday nights. Familiar, I'm sure, to many of you is this book. Um, but I do pray that we would all grow in our understanding of what it means to be found in Christ from this book. So we begin tonight with chapter 1 and verses 1 through 4. Uh, I'll read the text if you can turn there with me in your Bibles. First John chapter 1 and verses 1 through 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. 
and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Thus reads God's word. It was in 1563 that a group of men from Heidelberg University set to write a catechism, a series of questions and answers by which they would teach theology. The document that those men wrote, of course, went on to become known as the Heidelberg Catechism. And sadly, it's often overlooked for the more well-known Westminster Catechism. The Heidelberg Catechism is a rich body of theology. And when you read it, you can't help but notice that it is more pastoral in its tone than the Westminster. Question one of the Heidelberg asks, what is my only comfort in life and in death? What is my only comfort in life and in death? And the answer, that I am not my own, but I belong body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all of my sins with his precious blood. He has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of the Father. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I am his, Jesus Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life. And he makes me wholeheartedly ready and willing from now on to live for him. I think that's one of the richest confessional statements that's ever been written. I have returned to it personally myself many times for my own comfort, for my own zeal, for my own joy. Now, as I've meditated often on question one of the Heidelberg, it has occurred to me just how much the authors were pressing into the doctrine of assurance. What is my only comfort in life and in death? It is that I don't belong to me that Christ owns me. And you might go on to say, and I know that it is true. If you think even what it is that a a catechism aims to achieve, it is the the communication of knowledge, not just at a, a head level, but that the reader would embrace it at a heart level. I am not my own. Christ owns me. He watches over me. He cares for me and works all things to the good of my salvation. The authors, in fact, go on to talk about assurance. Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life. And as I've thought through this rich doctrinal statement, it is clear that the authors of the Heidelberg Catechism understood that the seat of all comfort and the seat of all zeal and the seat of all joy in the Christian life is found in a certainty of who you are in Christ. What it means to be found in union with him, that is what provokes all joy in your life. And 
That is the message of 1 John. John is writing to the same end. If we just turn briefly to the end of his letter, chapter 5 and verse 13, you see his purpose statement. 5.13 reads, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, there are in 1 John 5 chapters, 105 verses, and several times John will say, I'm writing in order that, and then give us some kind of, of reason for writing. I believe this last time that he states it in chapter 5 is the, is the governing purpose statement of the whole book. In the ancient world, it's often the case that the author would leave his, his main purpose statement until the very end, so if you think about John's gospel, just by way of example, we know there that John writes out his gospel account, and it's at the very end that he says, I've written these things so that you might believe in the name of the Son of God, and in believing in him, you would have eternal life. That's his purpose statement in the gospel. And, and in like manner, in 1 John, he waits until the very end, I believe, to give his, his overarching purpose statement for the book. And we see that he is writing to those that have confessed Jesus as the Son of God, to give them confidence, or you might say assurance, a confidence in who they are, that they would know that they are indeed in union with him, and that union guarantees eternal life. Now, John's aim in the text that we find tonight is not separate from that, but very much overlapping. You see at the end of the paragraph that I read, we get another purpose statement, we are writing these things so that our joy might be complete. This is not set apart from his purpose statement at the end of the letter, but the two go hand in hand. I'm writing so that you know who you, would, who you are in Christ, and that knowledge, that certainty would bring about joy in your life. And he's not writing, we should note, without precedence. You see, any time you study 1 John and 2nd and 3rd John, I would encourage you to have a copy of John's Gospel open beside you. It's amazing to see as you study 1 John just how many connections there are between this short letter and the Gospel account. And so often what John does is he builds upon the theology that Jesus gave him, recorded for us in the Gospel account, and he develops it as he passes it on to this new generation of Christians. And the reason I draw that to your attention is because in chapter 15 of John's gospel, Jesus teaches what it is to be in union with him. Jesus teaches about what it means that he is in relationship with the Father and the disciples are in relationship with him. And, and notably, he says in that chapter, I am saying these things so that your joy would be complete. So it does seem that John is kind of picking up that discourse and running with it. As he says to this congregation, I am writing that you would have confidence concerning your identity in Christ. And I know that that confidence, that knowledge of who you are in him is the seat of all joy in the Christian life. He desires just as Christ desired that we would be full of joy. Now, the historical situation that sits behind this letter, the, the situation that prompted John to write the letter, is one of confusion. 
some false teachers, it would seem, had arisen from within the congregation. They had taught some distortion of the person of Christ, which then becomes a distortion of the gospel itself. And then those false teachers seemingly had left the congregation and quite possibly taken some with them. So later on in the letter, as you know, we read, they, they went out from us. They left us. These false teachers left us. Why? Because they weren't of us. They weren't in union with Christ. And now they've gone, but their false teaching seemingly had caused enough confusion within the congregation that John felt the need to clarify both the person, the nature, the work, the ministry of Christ, and indeed the gospel itself. You can imagine the situation. You've heard of some other teaching going around. Sunday by Sunday, you show up and you're hearing whispers and you're hearing something going on in your midst that doesn't quite match up with the testimony that you heard from John. And then one Sunday, you turn up and maybe a third of your group are missing. Or maybe even a half have, have left. And the, the room is now half as full as it was last Sunday. And now those that are left are looking at each other. And they're nervous. And they're uncertain. And they start to question, did we get it right? Did we believe in the Christ who saves? Is our gospel the right gospel? Or have those that have left us got the real account? And so amidst great uncertainty, John writes this letter. There is nothing that will rob you of your joy so quickly than an uncertainty concerning the gospel by which you have been saved and an uncertainty concerning your standing before God. Now, at that point, we might ask, well, how does this letter function in our congregation today? Praise the Lord, we are not facing that same historical situation. We don't have an exodus on our hands based on a distortion of the person and the work of Christ and a distortion of the gospel itself. And in many ways, when we consider the historical situation sitting behind this letter, all of a sudden the letter can seem very foreign to us. Of what use is it to us today? The answer is actually quite simple. We live in the most pluralistic age in all of human history, which is to say there are more worldviews and truth claims today in society than ever before. Indeed, the norms upon which society has been formed, the norms upon which society operates are being challenged and redefined more than ever before. They are being redefined more radically and more extensively than we have ever seen before in human history. We live in an age where our definition for marriage is no longer acceptable. The definition for marriage that we've held to for thousands of years is no longer acceptable in the public sphere. We live in an age where our understanding of gender, of what it is to be a man and a woman, is no longer palatable in the public sphere. We live in an age where the definition of life itself, both in its inception and its termination, is up for debate. And the problem there is that as these societal norms 
are being challenged and redefined is that in indirect ways, they will eventually undermine the gospel. They will challenge the gospel, challenge the person of Jesus Christ, and make a clear proclamation of the good news more and more difficult. The gospel starts to lose its clarity when you change the very fabric of society upon which we have assumed life to operate for so long. You see, the gospel depends on certain norms being intact. We have to know what it is to be a person to proclaim the gospel. We have to agree on what it means to be a person created in the image of God, living under the authority of God, having transgressed the law of God so as to need salvation by God in order to be redeemed to the praise and glory of God. And when you start to change the fabric and the norms of society, the gospel gets harder and harder to proclaim. Invariably, one of two things happen. When you challenge the norms of society, either Jesus Christ becomes insufficient or he becomes unnecessary. Invariably, one of two things happens when you start to change the definitions that we have depended upon for so long. Jesus becomes insufficient. That is, his person is undermined to the extent that he is no longer the perfect savior to answer our greatest problem. Or he becomes unnecessary. He just becomes a good teacher. And he's one of many good teachers. So you can take him or you can leave him, but he's no longer the perfect savior. That is the age in which we live in. And so this letter written to clarify who Jesus Christ is and what it means to be found in him is desperately needed for the church today. Over time, as we heard this morning, the church can begin to embrace the redefinitions that society is making. Over time, all too easily, distortions of the truth can creep into the church. And the, the degree to which the church embraces any distortion of the truth, so then its members start to lose their joy. John writes to a particular congregation but speaks in turn to us so that we may know who we are in Christ and our joy may be made complete. He wants us to know what it means to be found in him. He wants us to be confident of what it means to be found in union with Jesus Christ. More than ever, the church needs to know and to be sure of what it means to be justified, that the work of Christ on the cross has justified you, so that though you were once an enemy of God and every fiber of your being rebelled against him, and you had no understanding of just how extensive your sins were against the holy God, now the gospel has wrought for you a justification whereby God says, accepted, forgiven. The gospel and the work of Jesus Christ has worked so that now the holy God looks at you and says, perfect. More than ever, the church needs to understand what it means to be born again. Language that John himself is pleased to use. 
We need to know and be confident of what it means that God has taken out a heart of stone that was in no way inclined towards him. And he put in there by his grace, not by any work of your own, a heart that intrinsically worships God, inherently is inclined towards a love of the Savior. Today, the church, more than ever, needs to know and be confident of what it means that you have been adopted by your Father that he could have left you justified, but he went further and said, now I bring you into my family. And now you may address me as father. And all the benefits of sonship are yours. The church needs to know what it means to be a Christian. And when you know and are confident of who Christ is and what your union with him entails, that is when fullness of joy comes about in your life. As one author said, when Christ looms large in your heart, that is when joy will abound. You see, as we consider the the message of 1 John, the next question that follows is, what is John's strategy? Whenever you open any book of the Bible, particularly the epistles in the New Testament, you need to be asking the question of the, the strategy of the writer. How does he go about accomplishing his aim? The aim is clear, fullness of joy, a a confidence that you are in Christ having eternal life. But how does John achieve it? And it is so telling that he opens his letter. His opening gambit in these first four verses is not to turn the camera around on self. His opening gambit is not to examine your life and, and first and foremost as a matter of priority, Ask what it is that testifies in your life that you are indeed in union with him. John's strategy from the very beginning is to set forth as a matter of priority the man Christ Jesus. Because John knows that the more and more you look to Christ and the more that you understand him, so then the more you understand what it means to be in a relationship with him as an absolute priority the church must pursue a larger view of Christ. The church must pursue a larger view of Christ. Now, how do we navigate this rich, theologically dense paragraph? Some have called it the most beautiful paragraph in all of the New Testament. It is theologically rich, and there is so much that could be drawn out here. For tonight, we'll simply look at three Roadmarks, three points on the map. They are means. They're means to which we must attend in order that we would pursue a larger view of Christ. How do we consider Christ yet more? How do we take him in yet more? How do we enlarge him? John gives us a a method here tonight, and it is a roadmap that leads us to the fullness of joy. We're listening to Timeless Truth Today. Pastor Paul, in his introduction, has quoted this Q&A from our 16th century church fathers in the Heidelberg Confession. Question, what is my only comfort in life and in death? The answer is glorious and most comforting. Quote, I am not my own, but I belong body and soul in life and in death 
to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. One cannot serve our Savior without assurance of His saving blood, which covers all of our sins. Timeless Truth Today is a teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Twist, a listener-supported outreach of Bethany Bible Church in Thousand Oaks, California. If this program is helping you grow closer to Jesus, would you consider a financial gift to help support the ongoing work of this outreach ministry? You'll be partnering with us as we reach hungry souls with the gospel of Jesus on radio and online. Go to TimelessTruthToday.org, our homepage there, click Donate, and make your gift of any size. Hope you'll join us tomorrow for part two in our new series, Pursuing a Larger View of Christ. I'm Matt Williams. Thank you for listening to Timeless Truth Today.